Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast with lead pastor Don Headley. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that he gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We are in the second week of a series entitled Colossians. Just uh, That's a clever name because that's the book that we're working through. We just thought that was appropriate. And so uh, we are going to spend five weeks on this. And what I did is I challenged you last week when we kicked this series off to read all four chapters because it's a, it's a short book. It's only four chapters long. I wanted you to read it every week. How many of you were able to read all four chapters this week? Okay. Okay, good. A few of you. Uh, I want to encourage you to do that. This next week, just jump in. Like I said, we've got five weeks of this, so I want you to jump in and try to read all four this next week. And here's why. Because if you read through that during the week, when you come in here on Sunday and we do the teachings, you're actually going to get more out of it uh, than just coming in and not knowing the text. And so I hope that you'll take that challenge, read through it this next week. Uh, I think we can, we can do a lot better this week and have a bunch of you read it before we start our message next Sunday. Now, uh, I want to take you to our next section of scripture today. We're actually covering uh, a few verses in chapter one. So head over to Colossians chapter one, and we're just going to cover this short section of 15 through 23 today. And so I want to encourage you just flip there while you're going there. I want to point your attention to this mirror to my my right here and uh, ask a question. When you get up in the morning um, and you go and you look in the mirror, uh, what is it that you see? What is it that grabs your attention when you see yourself? Now, you might be thinking, well, it's my messy hair or something like that. But I want to challenge you because I have a philosophy. I don't know if I'm right on this or not, uh, but I feel pretty confident that I can say this today. Is that I think when we look in the mirror, we see a lot more than just our physical appearance. And the reason for that is because we know ourselves better than anybody. And when we take a look at ourselves in the mirror, certain things come to mind, like memories come to mind, thoughts come to mind that shape the way that we see ourselves that have nothing to do with our physical appearance. Are you with me so far? See, I think for many of us, when we look at ourselves, uh, not only do we see our flaws, right, which I think is evident sometimes, right? Especially as I'm getting older, I hate looking in the mirror. It's just uh, the growing old is not for the faint of heart, right on. Uh, but it's more than just the flaws. I, I think if you're like me, when you look in the mirror, sometimes you shake your head a little bit. Maybe, maybe it's di- this disappointing, um, this look of disappointment or a disapproving look uh, because you start thinking through certain things and, and things that come up maybe are like um, brokenness. Uh, Or maybe you're thinking about things that's happened to you in the past, right? Uh, Things that you were not able to overcome yourself. And so, therefore, uh, I don't know, maybe you see when you look in the mirror, maybe some scars. Uh, Or maybe, because of past sins, it's guilt. Um, For me, I think uh, it's one of the things that pops up all the time. Is failure. What is it that you, you see in the mirror when you look in the mirror? What is it for you? 
And is it all physical? Or is it deeper than that? See, I, I really believe that many of us, when we look in the mirror, it is way more, way more than just what you can see. And I think that proves a couple of things. First of all, it proves that all these things, um, we allow them to stick around in our lives and they shape and mold the type of person that we are. Our confidence, our self-image, we struggle with that. Um, I, I think the other thing that it points out, though, is this, is that we instinctively understand that we are more than what you can see. Right on? Like we have a soul. There's something more. There's something inside of us that people can't see. And we know that to the very core of who we are. Now, the reason that's so important today is I want to set the tone with this because here's what my prayer. My prayer is that when we go through our text today, that this is going to change for you today. Because what Paul writes is so incredible, so mind-blowing that it changes this. And we'll get to that toward the end, but I want you to pay attention to the text today. Now, last week when we kicked this series off, we talked a little bit about the context of Colossians. If you weren't here, we just said that the Apostle Paul is writing this. This is a letter that he's writing, and he's writing it to a group of Christians in a faraway town called Colossae. It's a church there. He's never been there. He's never met these people, but it comes to his attention that there's all these heresies, like there's a good start of a church there, like the gospel is taking root. There's growth happening, and yet heresy is starting to find itself into the church. They're being infused with all these other ideas, and they're struggling and hanging on to the true gospel, and he decides, I've got to write this letter, and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he pens an amazing letter, which is what we're working our way through. Now, this... uh, This letter was to combat a lot of the heresies within the church. And the one that we're dealing with today is the heresy that they were being told that Christ could not be both human and divine. He couldn't be both flesh and God. It just couldn't happen. And yet Paul is going to throw that argument right out the window today. He's going he's gonna to approach it a little bit differently, though, than what we would expect. Uh, back in 1893, Chicago uh, hosted the World's Fair. It was a fair that went on for six months, an amazing fair. 21,000 people visited during this, I'm sorry, 21 million people visited during this time. They brought in all, you know, everything from agriculture to building to science. It was a massive fair. But what was interesting is one of the things that they did that was different was they invited all these different religious leaders to come and to meet at the fair to have kind of a a big open discussion. They were opening a discussion on faith. And so all these leaders, even from Eastern religions, Western religions, all came together and they began to discuss the good points of all their different religions. And I really believe that some of the heart behind this was they, they were thinking back in the day that this was going to lead everyone to one truth to create one world religion. And as you know, that didn't happen because here we are and all these different religions are still going on, right? Um, but what I found fascinating is one of the greatest Christian pastors of the time, one of the greatest preachers, one of the most anointed, Holy Spirit-filled pastors of the time, D.L. Moody, um, was there, but he didn't go for this. 
Like he just decided he wasn't going to take part in his parliament. Actually, he did something different. He went and rented movie theaters. He set up a massive tent. He was preaching the gospel nonstop. And a lot of his supporters were telling D.L. Moody, you got to get in there. You got to tell them what they're doing wrong and, and show them why Jesus is the way. And he said, I'm not going to do that. Here's what I'm going to do. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will turn to him. That was his goal. And I think what D.L. Moody understood, and I think what Paul understands, and you're going to see that in the text today, is that you don't fight heresies by pointing out the flaws. You actually turn and go the other direction, and you celebrate and declare who Jesus is. Because when you point to the truth, the untruth becomes obvious. So he didn't see the need in even fighting with, with the parliament and everything that was going on, he just said, I'm just going to go and I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul does in our text today. Now, if you were raised in the church, if you were raised in a traditional church, one that sang hymns, um, you probably have a favorite hymn. How many of you have like a favorite hymn? Okay, yeah. Um, yours might be something like um, Amazing Grace, right? Or maybe it was uh, the hymn that we sang last Sunday. Did you catch this? We sang Blessed Assurance. Um, we, maybe it's Jesus paid it all. Oh, I grew up in a very, very small uh, church, very small church. And um, every Sunday they would ask somebody to pick out a hymn for the next week. And, and like the whole time I was growing up there, I think I got asked like three times. And every time I got asked, and they would put the special hymn of the day and then they'd put the person who requested it, you know, in, in the bulletin because we handed out bulletins back then. And, and it was really kind of cool. And I got asked as I was growing up, maybe, maybe three times. And every time I said the old rugged cross, that was my favorite hymn. And today it's still my favorite hymn that, that is sung. Now, the reason I bring all that up is to say this. We're going to go through a section of Scripture from verse 15 to 20. If you, if you look at a paper Bible, or maybe it's done this way on you version, if you take a look at it, you'll see that it's split up a little bit differently. It reads differently than the other text. And the reason for that is because scholars believe that what Paul is doing here is he's actually writing out the verses of an ancient hymn that was sung in the early church to declare the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the supremacy of God. It's an amazing hymn that they would have sung. They would have known it. So it would have been like me using a, t a song today that you're familiar with to make a point. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And I want you to take a look at this because he launches in into this hymn in verse 15 uh, with an amazing character reference for Jesus Christ. Uh, this is what he says to start it all off. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He's the visible image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ. Remember the heresies that he's trying to fight? He says, look, he is the visible image. And that word image in the original text in the Greek is this word uh, that when I say it, you're going to go, wait a minute, that's an English word. We use it all the time. It's the word icon. And you know that because you have uh, you know, your phone or device and you have all these little icons on there, right, for all your apps. That's what that is. But honestly, uh, the word that's being used here is a lot more detailed than that. What icon really meant was something that was a, a reflection of something else. And I think the best way to, to think about it, because we think about the icons on our phone, and I think that's, a, that's not the right way to look at it. Maybe think about, instead of the apps on your phone, think about a portrait. 
Like the, the person sits in a chair for hours and, and a great painter will actually paint a portrait that looks just like them. That's a better description of this word icon. And what he's saying here is that Jesus is the visible image. He's the visible icon of God himself. Now what's interesting about that is you and I were supposed to be the same thing. Do you realize that? In Genesis chapter 1, uh, it says that God says, let us, referring to the Trinity, it's a nod to the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image, is what it says. Icon. We were supposed to be a visible image of the invisible God. We were supposed to reflect his character and his love and his goodness. And what happened, if you know the story, is that sin entered into the picture and it broke that original design. And then later on, Jesus shows up on the scene. God in flesh, incarnate is the word that we use many times, but it just means God in flesh as a 100% human, 100% God shows up. And they actually refer to him in scripture as the second Adam. Because the first one messed it up, right? So he becomes the second Adam. He's going to set things right. And, and it says here, Paul is saying that he is the visible image. Notice the word is. Like it's not, Jesus is just a reflection of, of God. He's not just a, a resemblance of God. He is the visible image of Almighty God. Like, like this is who he is. John 1 says it this way. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, talking about Jesus Christ himself, the unique one who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. And later on, when Jesus would actually say, hey, uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he wasn't kidding. Like, he was right on the money. He's saying, look, I am God. Paul says that Christ is the visible image, that he is the visible image of the invisible God. Paul is saying that Christ is God. That's who he is. And and he's making this point not just to make it, but to also combat the heresy that Christ could not be both human and divine. And this heresy is actually coming out of a thought process that's very Greek, if you think about it. There was a lot of Greek influence in this town of Colossae. And and what they were being told is, look, uh, the gods, thinking about Greek mythology, right? Like Zeus is up here. He can't interact with man. And so he creates all these other beings that interact, right? So gods would not interact with with uh, humanity. And yet in this moment, Paul is saying just the opposite. No, Greek mythology is a myth, Like, let me tell you what really happens here. God created us, and then he sends his son to dwell among us. Paul says that Jesus is God. He is God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And then he goes on to say, He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Look at this. Everything was created through him and for him. Now, I don't know exactly how it all works. I just know that we have this trinity, this this three-in-one, God the Father, Jesus is the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if I read this, literally what I find is that there's a creative element 
that goes on here. Maybe God directs it and Jesus does the creating. I don't know. But we're told here that Jesus is the agent of the Trinity that created. Now, if you want to know something about yourself, not these things, read this passage. Because do you realize this tells you everything that you need to know about yourself? Because you are one of the everythings. Everything. This tells you the by and why of your story. You were created by Jesus and for Jesus. The idea that God sent us, uh, sent his son into the world to save us tells you that you are valuable, but also the fact that you were created by Jesus and for Jesus tells you that you are, there's an inherent value in that because you have been created by God. There's this inherent value in the fact that you were created by Jesus and for Jesus. And yet that value gets pushed off to the side and we pursue it in everything else. Can I just tell you, if you really grasp this this morning, then no job, no accomplishment, no pleasure, no success, no money, no person will ever trump this truth. The fact that you were created by Jesus and for Jesus. That's who you are. He goes on in verse 17 to say, he existed before everything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in what? Everything. Christ was here in the beginning. He, he created everything. He holds everything together. He exists um, he, he exists through the Holy Spirit in our lives. We exist for his glory. I mean, when you start to understand who you are and whose you are, it changes everything. We are here because God created us and we are here for his glory. That's it. Everything else gets, gets thrown away. That's all you need to know about yourself. Now, does that include you? Yes, it includes you. It includes me. It includes every one of us. None of us are an exception in this, this situation. And actually, this church is included in that as well. Do you realize it says that Christ is also the head of the church? I love this analogy. He is the head of the church. And so often, I tell you what, we, we look around the world and we see churches that are led by people who are proclaiming that they are God, right? Um. I love this because what it tells me is that Christ is the head of the church. Nothing else. Not the style of worship. Not me. Not you. Not any group. Not, not a theology on end times, right? That's, that's, not, that's not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, period. That's it. Can I just say, if you go looking for a church and you find a church where there's a person or a group of people that are the head of the church, run for your life. Because it's Christ and no one else. It goes on to say in verse 19, For God is in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. I love that line. If, if you missed it, make sure you read that again. For God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. Not only did Jesus create you, but he gave his life. He went, he died, he shed his blood so that he could save you. 
not only did, did Jesus create you, but he redeemed you. He redeemed you. It says in Scripture that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega, it just means uh, the first letter in the Greek alphabet and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. Can I just say that he's every letter in between as well? Like he was, he was here in the beginning, he'll be here in the end. He, it says that he is your creator and he is your savior. He's there when you're born, he'll be there when you're, you're dead to welcome you into eternal life. Jesus is supreme. He is over everything. There is nothing that gets by him. Verses 21 and 22, it says, This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now, this, this is the verse that I've been praying over this whole week. So if you've been asleep, please wake up. If you've ignored everything I've said, I just want you to hear this because this, if you really understand this verse, will change your life. I promise you that, okay? Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, look at this, he has brought you into his own presence and you are what? You are holy and what? Blameless as you stand before him without a single what? Fault. Have you ever thought of yourself like that? Through Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, because Jesus is so, so powerful and so mighty and so magnificent. Through Jesus, not because you're awesome, not because you have some talent or you're great looking. It has nothing to do with you. But because of Jesus, because of who he is, you've been brought into his own presence. And in the presence of God, you are holy. Have you ever thought of yourself as holy before? blameless, able to stand in front of him without a single flaw. Get this. Everything that Jesus is, he is in you. Everything that Jesus is, he is in you. The mystery of the gospel that Paul's explaining here, and he takes it from a mystery, and he just explains it in simplistic terms so that we'll understand it, is that when God looks at you, he sees Christ. He sees Christ, not all the other stuff. Now, our view of ourselves is jacked up. I, I admit it. We, we struggle with this because this is what we see when we look in the mirror, right? It's all the flaws. It's all the struggles. We have trouble of forgiving ourselves, letting things go. There, there's certain things that happen to us that, that we just think we're going to hang on to for the rest of our lives. Some of us are addicted to things, and we think because of that addiction, we can't overcome. We can't ever be made whole again. We can't be cured. We can't be made right in God's presence, and we beat ourselves up over it. And, and ladies, if I can just say something for a minute, um, I, hope you don't, I hope you don't take this wrong. I think women struggle with this almost twice as much as men. Um, your self-image, if you could find a way, especially our young ladies, to find your identity in Christ and in not in everything else, especially your flaws, I want you to understand at a very, very deep level what this scripture says is that when you stand before God, he doesn't see all that. All he sees is Christ himself. That's it. That's it. You were created in his image. 
and you were redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when Christ sees you, he doesn't see all the junk that you think you see. He's taking care of all of that. And through a high, high price, don't get me wrong, I mean, what Christ did for us, we can't even imagine. But because of that, when we stand before God, all he sees when he looks at you is Christ himself. That's it. It says in verse 23, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Uh, I'm going to say something just because I feel like I need to say this. I didn't say this in the last service. When you go to Ephesians, you'll see a list of um, armor that you're supposed to put on. Some of you uh, probably need to hear this right now. Uh, one of the pieces of the armor that I love the most is the helmet, the helmet of salvation. Uh, so, so much focus, I think, is put on the sword and other things, but the helmet of salvation, I'll tell you why, because I really believe that the battle is won and lost in the mind. And one of the things that we are told, because when we look in the mirror, we see all the wrong stuff, is that we can never be right with God, that we're somehow less, and then we struggle in our addiction or whatever it is, and we, and we think that we're somehow subpar or less than the people around us, and Jesus is like, no, I paid that for you already. You're done. You are holy and you are blameless and you can stand in front of God without a single flaw. Not because of you, but because of what I've done. And Jesus stands there and he wants to offer that to you. But because of all the stuff that we see when we see in the mirror, we find ourselves not pursuing Christ the way we should. When we need to wipe the mirror clean and go, no, that is not me because of the price Jesus paid. And when God looks at me, all he sees is Christ. I can pursue him with everything that I have. I can throw off everything else. And what that does, it leads you into a life of gratitude and thanksgiving and praise and worship to where you can let those things go and focus on Jesus. That's where we need to be today. I love the fact that it says continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. If we can stand firmly in this truth, when, when Satan comes whispering, that helmet of salvation can protect us and go, no, it's been paid, it's mine. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, it's mine. We're able to keep our eyes on Jesus and live Christ-centered lives. Christ-centered lives are our lives where Christ is first in everything. First in your marriage, first in your finances, first in your career, first in your, your dating young people. When you're dating, you need to be, keep Christ first. Christ first in everything. We need to get back to the verse that in verse 18, the last part where it says, so he is first in what? Everything. Do you know what that word means in the Greek? It means everything. That's what it means. Everything. Like it's, he wasn't trying to hide it. He wasn't trying to make it hard. He just said, put Christ first in everything. That's a Christ-centered life. And maybe you've learned this, but I've learned in my life when I'm having problems in life, many times it's because I put something else first in my life and not Christ. That's where a lot of my problems come from. Uh, some of you are struggling in your finances today because you did not put Christ first in your finances. Some of you, your marriage is on the rocks today because you have not put Christ at the center of your marriage. You have not put him first. And l listen to me, you want to fix a marriage, you got to get the vertical part right first before the horizontal will get right. You got to focus on God. Some of you are struggling in your families today and you don't understand why, but Christ has no part in your family. 
you're struggling because you have not put Christ first in your family. And we struggle to do that because we have a sinful nature. We have sinful desires and and we want what we want. And and one of the things I've heard said is that um, living sacrifices are difficult because they always want to crawl off the altar. But yet we need to continue to sacrifice ourselves and give ourselves over to God and make him first in our lives and everything we do. That is the goal of the Christian life is to make Christ first in everything because of the supremacy of Jesus Christ Everything belongs to him. You, me, everything in our lives. He should be first in our marriages, in our career, in our worship, in our, in our families. We need to place him first in everything, first in this church. Um, our goal is so he is first in what? Everything. First in everything. Because of Christ's supremacy, everything belongs to him. And we can let everything go and we can focus solely upon him and we can worship him with everything in our lives. Uh, I want to invite you in this time, we're going to sing a song that just talks about you're worthy. And I pray in this moment, you'll just focus on the supremacy of Christ and that you will worship him like never before because he is deserving of it. Let me pray for us and then we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now in this moment. As broken people, Lord, and sometimes we, uh, we have to admit, when we look in the mirror, we see everything but you. Lord, we, uh, we repent of that. Because of the price that you paid for us, Lord, I pray that you would help us stay focused on that, on what Paul's talking about here in, in Colossians chapter 1. That you are supreme, that you are magnificent. You are powerful. You have taken care of all of this. And Lord, allow us not to let the enemy come and whisper and steal those things from us, but let us rest this week in the fact that you are God. Lord, I pray that as this week unfolds, that we would just do a better job of putting you first in everything. God, may your Holy Spirit convict us in the areas where we are not putting you first. And Lord, uh, help us to confess those things. And Lord, I pray that this just continues to, to mold and shape us. Not just our lives, but Lord, I pray especially for the people in the room who need it in their mental frame of mind, who need it in the emotional part of their life, who need it in their self-image. May you reign supreme in those areas as well. God, we give you all these things. We ask all this brings glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. It's in that name that we pray and all God's people said.